This episode of the Data Center Podcast is brought to you by Data Center World, the global conference for data center facilities and IT professionals. Join industry colleagues in San Antonio from March 12th to March 15th, 2018 to discover solutions to real-world data center problems. Learn more at datacenterworld.com. Again, that's datacenterworld.com. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Data Center Podcast. I have here with me Cole Crawford. He's the CEO and founder of Vapor.io. Hello. Thank you for joining us, Cole. Thanks for having me. Cole's in town for Mobile World Congress, the inaugural American Mobile World Congress. Uh, he's here to uh, spread the gospel of Vapor.io and uh, problems we're all about to face if we don't build this edge computing thing really fast. The edge is nigh. So, uh, Cole, tell us first about uh, briefly about what Vapor.io does. Sure. Uh, Vapor was started out of sort of the cross-sections of what we thought would be paradigm shifts happening both in the cloud world uh, as well as the tel telecommunications industry. As we get closer to 5G infrastructure, more and more of the telco infrastructure gets virtualized. Uh, more and more of that becomes uh, commodity uh, hardware driven white box driven, and that is a forcing function for how the leases happen with the MNOs on the real estate that they are deployed against. And we thought that we had a, a fairly novel invention for how we could work with both the MNOs as well as the content companies and cloud companies for solving lots of uh, financial barriers and hurdles. Uh, as well as many technical barriers uh, and hurdles uh, associated with how this future world gets deployed. And you guys kind of came out of stealth with a very different um, product, different story, um, at least the way it was formulated at the time. It was the vapor chamber, super high density way to deploy data center gear. These cool uh, cylindrical pods. Um, how did that grow into this much bigger vision now? Actually, you know, it's funny. If you go back to 2015, and I think, Yevgeny, you were one of the first people to ever write yeah, on Vapor. That's right. And if we look back at 2015 and the title, uh, uh, the headline for our announcement, it was Vapor.io launches Vapor Chamber for Network Edge. And I, I, would, I would say that, you know, in, in conversations with folks, the only thing that's really changed about uh, the way we are going to market is we sort of stopped selling the chamber or focusing primarily on the chamber as a product and more on the technology we built, including the chamber as a service. Uh, so moving from that product-based uh, uh, company to a services-based company, that's the biggest change. Uh, and obviously there needed to be an inflection point for why we would make that change, and that came out of uh, you know a fairly new relationship uh, with the tower industry, specifically Crown Castle. You, there's a quote you like to use in conference presentations: "The speed of light sucks." The speed of light sucks. It's, John it's, Carmack. It's like, I like to use lots of quotes, by the way, which maybe I can use of a couple you of them that, today. That one but, is, uh, is, uh, but that's a staple, um, and and you know we use that because. It's very relevant to the type of next-gen experiences that we think the world is going to demand out of 5G. It's funny, you know, a, a, another uh, 
Another quote that I like to say is, is from Arthur C. Clarke. Uh, you know, he was a, obviously a science fiction writer, and he was you know, f talking about the future in the 1960s, and he said, if what I say now seems to be very reasonable, then I will have failed completely. Only if what I tell appears absolutely unreasonable have we any chance of visualizing the future as it really will happen. And that's a long way of saying that humans have a bad track record of the value proposition of new technology. Um, we almost never get it right. Uh, the only thing that we know uh, is that, for sure, is that data is the new gold. If we believe that information and data and what you do with that data is the new gold, then we can work backwards from how much data is going to exist, uh, you know, how much data needs to be analyzed, how much data needs to be propagated. This goes into really interesting mathematical equations around data mass and data velocity and data gravity, um, at all of which, uh, when you talk about things in you know, requests per second or requests per time, right? It may not be second anymore, it may be millisecond. Um, all of a sudden, uh, an entirely new world opens up and the way that we have architected the internet, the way that the internet was, I guess, self-architected, um, does not solve for the latency demands, the QoS demands, and uh, even the bandwidth demands, uh, you know, when you uh, consider the associated data ingress and egress costs with uh, the type of, you know, so if you, if you look at IDC's recent um, report, 20, 2025, there's going to be 175 zettabytes of data on the planet and 40 billion connected devices. You know, this morning when we were on stage at, at, at Mobile World Congress speaking, uh, one of the folks, I, I believe from Telstra, said we're on our, we're on our path to a trillion devices. Um, the fiber in the ground is going to have a hard time keeping up with that type of communication if everything is still so central. The internet today is still a very centralized architecture. Um, we connect to our big cloud service providers and the um, you know, for lack of a better term, the availability zones that you go into across all of the CSPs. And then we try and break that out through content delivery networks, et cetera. But when you and I watch a Netflix movie, when we watch YouTube, when we watch you know, something, the caching for that content, it's the same movie. It's the same file for you and me. Uh, but in the world of IoT and industrial IoT and machine to machine communications, that, that data is now much more dynamic. Uh, and it's much more localized, which gets into the data gravity uh, side of the equation. So, um, so data going into the cloud versus you watching a movie, you know, downloading it from the cloud. Not a lot just more da data coming in. Uh, much more data coming in from a from a telemetry and situational awareness standpoint. There's far more data to be processed at the edge, where speed of light does matter, because some of these new uh, application types demand uh, very low latency type capabilities. Uh, I'll give you a couple examples. Uh, your human eye, you know, every, every human eye sees about 150 degrees vertically and about 180 degrees horizontally. And at every, uh, at every degree, you can see roughly 200 points for every degree. Uh, if you were to do some very mild compression, um, you're looking at about 5.4 gigabits of data per eye per second. 
that's a ton of data. So if we think about the reality of how to get that much data in an augmented reality, so whether it's you know, our phones, but more likely you know, a HoloLens or you know, an Oculus or some Vive kind of headset, a wearable some kind of wearable, face. you are going to get physically ill if you have something north of about seven milliseconds of round trip latency. Mm -hmm. And the speed of light being constant, uh, it's hard to go, uh, the, the, it's hard to travel the path that we have built on the internet today. In other words, there's no, there's no way to, to deliver that experience if the computing happens miles and miles Absolutely away correct. from the end user. Absolutely correct. Another example is autonomous driving. Um, if you think about the, uh, and, and to your point, you know, there's two, there's really two edges. Well, there's uh, edge as a gradient, but there's two use cases we talk a lot about for edge. And one is what you'd mentioned earlier, the, the data ingress and egress. Getting data in and out uh, is a huge problem to solve for in a post 5G world, a post 175 zettabytes of data world. Uh, but you also have these very low latency uh, capabilities that we're trying to build in. Autonomous driving is one of these. Um, I was having a, a fun conversation recently with uh, somebody who actually works at one of these autonomous driving companies, and he was saying to me that he has to think about um, all of these uh, FPGAs and GPUs and you know next generation uh, machine learning artificial intelligence gear to make sub four millisecond decisions about where to drive a car. And it, it, we get we could go we could get lost in the weeds here. We could go beyond technical um, uh, challenges and start talking about moral challenges. On if you've got a passenger in the back of an autonomous car and you've got a pedestrian on the outside of the car, where does that car go in a bad situation? So there's not just technical things to solve for here, right. but I think before we even talk about the the moral implications of how we make those types of decisions, uh, we need to figure out how. Uh, the technological side of those decisions will be made first. But so for cars specifically, those real-time decisions are going to be happening on board. It's a fallacy itself. It's a fallacy. I don't. I don't believe that's true. I mean, yes, there's lots of data that that car uh, collects in real time, or at least you know very near time, that it senses itself through lidar or sensors or cameras, etc. Uh, but uh, okay, so how many? I don't actually know the answer to this question, I should, but how many cars are on the road in downtown San Francisco? No clue. Right, no clue. Lots, though. Yeah. It's one thing for the car, you know, for 100, 200, 300 cars to be autonomous driving around town. It's a very different thing for 100,000 or 200,000 cars to be driving around autonomously. Um, I, would, I would urge anybody who is interested in this topic to go research the amount of capital that goes into every single car, every single autonomous car today. And of course, we'll, we'll get better at commoditizing that. Humans are good at, at commoditizing stuff. But um, the capital requirements for that car to uh, exist as a functioning data center. And if we think about it, the car is a functioning data center today. Um, I think that we'll go through the same transformation. And look, I could be wrong, but it's my thesis that I think we'll go through the same transformation with the car that we did with the mainframe. Right? We used to think that the mainframe was a really good idea. Huge, vertically integrated thing. Um, and we sent people to 
to space with mainframes. But now, you know, we've replaced mainframes with commodity white box x86. And there, so there's still a market for it. There's still a market that the HPC market, other uh, other other markets um, for sure. Uh, but those are now the niche and not the mainstream. Right. And it's our thesis, I think, that eventually over time, the car will shift from being the data center to the server and the road will shift into being the rack for that data center and the city itself will be the data center. I see. So data centers everywhere. That's our, that's our look. Uh, that's our view. And um, again, if we talk about the speed of light, the cars that are generating that data, how do those cars get that data off? Right? You look at a mapping car and you, you, can, be, you can be mapping 40, uh, 40 terabytes of data a day north of that. A car just driving around could be 6 terabytes of data a day. That's a lot of data when you have 100, 200,000 autonomous cars, all with hard drives, all collecting data. How do you offload that data? Where does, where does that go? You need glass. You need fiber. You need wireless. You need a bunch of technology uh, to figure out how you're going to get that data off that car. Um, and that means that at some point you need connectivity. It's funny, you know, Scott, I think it was Scott McNeely. I think it was, um, I could be wrong, but somebody at Sun, uh, and I remember it, I, I first saw the commercial was back in 2008, maybe, but Sun, uh, very famously came out saying the network is the computer. They were absolutely correct. They were just a decade too soon. Um, connectivity is going to govern the experiences we have uh, over the next 20 years, uh, and maybe 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 the next 100 years. I mean, we've always, uh, and maybe it's always been true, right? It's probably more likely that connectivity has always governed how we interface with each other and how we interface with the world. Um, uh, as, I, as I think back through history, it seems to me that uh, our ability to uh, create commoditized communication lanes are what drive innovation. So, and you guys now made an announcement um, earlier this year, recently actually, uh, Project Volatis, uh, which is co-location for companies that want edge computing, uh, but this is not um, regular co-location. So tell us about it. Thank you for that. It, it's, it's, I don't want to say it's unfair to call us edge co-location and uh, functionally it looks a little bit like co-location. There's a, there's space available for, you know, a cost per kilowatt hour um, or kilowatt month. Um, but there are things that go into how you plan for that and how you operate a massively decentralized edge uh, data center platform. You know, everything from uh, risk profile to remote hands to smart hands to site planning changes when you go from thinking about four physically, you know, integrated buildings, vertically integrated physical buildings to say 40,000 across, uh, for instance, Crown Castle's tower portfolio. Uh, and certainly the density of the edge is something that the industry will um, sort of solve for organically. Uh, but you know, what fiber lines do you ride? Where do you pull dark fiber? Where do you ride lit fiber? Uh, as the radio access network from the MNOs become more virtualized, how do, you, how do you offload some data that might be able to travel over 3.5 gigahertz CBRS or 60 gigahertz, you know, these unlicensed spectrums? 
I, I, we, we firmly believe that, that the edge is going to open up a, a far more dynamic type of cloud, whether that's a content cloud for you know, uh, a company that owns AOL or Yahoo, or a CSP who you know, has um, uh, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of megawatts of cloud uh, infrastructure running on it. And before we go further, you mentioned Crown Castle, so I think it's a good time to explain why you mentioned that you guys uh, are partners and they're an investor. Crown uh, made a uh, minority investment into the company a few months ago. Um, and you know, obviously, Crown might be the largest company you've never heard of in the cloud world. Right. Uh, but they are the company, one of the companies in the United States that owns uh, a vast amount of uh, telco tower infrastructure yeah. and small cell infrastructure. So like the likes of Verizon, AT&T will lease the those big white base stations you yeah. see mounted on those monopoles, the M and O's are the are are major anchor tenants of those of right. those monopoles. Mm -hmm. Yes, those macro cell sites. Yeah. So and and so the you're describing a business that its collocation plus 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 plus, plus right. So it's not just a real estate um, game, right? You're you're being kind of professional services <laughs> provider. Yeah, I mean, to the extent that we have to think about services, we definitely do. But humans don't really scale well with that 175 zettabytes of data. You know, with all, with a lot of this data being machine to machine, uh, there's a there's a conversation. I think there's an industry conversation to be had about the resiliency of the edge or the resiliency of of data, and we solve that today in big data centers, even the hyperscale data centers, we solve that through, you know, effectively tiering, right? How redundant is your power? How much generator power do you have if your A and B feed go out from the grid? Uh, there's, a, there's a very large difference between being fault tolerant and being highly available. And our thesis is, and no different, you know, than the CSPs and the enterprises who said, you know, we're going to, we're going to build either cloud-native applications on NoSQL databases and will be highly available through that relationship, uh, or we'll build clustered file systems very much like you know, Google did with GFS, and we'll have all of that data propagate. Uh, and you know, while you have to solve for things like eventual consistency in Cloudland uh, or in, uh, in Clusteredland um, via you know, Eric Brewer's CAP theorem, um, it, you know, a lot of the data that gets uh, uh, inserted into these public clouds and our search engine results, et cetera, it's fine being eventually consistent. Um, and we're finding now that I think in our world, it's possible, another quote I like to say, uh, General George S. Patton said, fixed fortifications are a monument to the stupidity of man. Uh, and if you ask me if I'd rather be in one place or I'd rather be in 20 places, I'm gonna say 20, but I'll say 20 only if I know that I can manage those 20 sites, right? It's, it's the same thing. Is it, better to be, is it better to be always right, but potentially not able to answer, or eventually right, but always with an answer? And I think that the edge is going to need that eventual consistency and the resiliency associated with data centers moving to a high, highly available model and less of a fault-tolerant model. I see. So Volatus provides space 
at, at uh, the cell towers, um, helps companies decide, <clears throat> depending on their application, where, you know, which of the locations they need to deploy it? Helps companies help themselves. Okay. So we have, you know, Teach and this is really where it's uh, plus plus, you know, when you have, say, 40,000 potential sites to deploy against, how do you do site planning? Right? How does site planning occur? Uh, you've got fiber routes, you've got power to think about, you've got locality to think about, you know, your customer base. There's many, many variables and many factors that go into uh, a data center site planning uh, rollout. And, you know, we are a small startup, right? We, we are not a, a huge company. Um, and so we wanted to build what we could into technology. And if that technology can be software-based and service-based and sort of a, you know, a self-provisioning portal, um, we thought that our time was best spent building technology versus spinning up a, a large services company. I think, uh, to my point earlier, uh, humans just don't scale well uh, with that amount of data on the planet. Mm -hmm. I see. Um, how, how would you, you've been in the market, um, obviously selling this solution. How, how, uh, how much demand have you seen out there and what kind of companies are looking for services like this? This is not lip service. Uh, I, you know, I've been involved in many, many startups uh, in my career. And I can honestly say I've never seen inbound interest like I have in Volatis. I've never seen the, the quality of companies uh, and the desire to explore solutions. There's, there's real pain that's, that's being felt by a number of companies today. So like cloud service providers, uh, CSPs, content. MNOs, tower companies, um, uh, CDNs, uh, video companies, IoT companies, uh, uh, life sciences companies. I mean, there is a, uh, there is a large uh, hole in the market today. And a lot of those, I'm sorry, and a lot of those aren't even addressing, trying to address some new need. They're trying to address existing, existing needs. needs right? That's correct. Yeah, the, you know. Video, cloud applications. Yeah, humans, we, we always get the value proposition wrong of the future, right? So it's not for us to say what the world should expect out of the next five years. But what we know is data is the new gold. And, we, you know, what you do with that data, I think, is going to be king. Um, I, man, it, it's funny. I just, I was, I was reading... I was reading the news last week and, you know, Putin was pretty famously quoted now as saying the country that solves for AI first wins for artificial intelligence, for true artificial intelligence. That's a very interesting thing to think about. The amount of, I mean, and you obviously have no artificial intelligence without deep learning. And, and deep learning today, uh, all learning today pretty much is centralized. You have to take all of that data back to one place and you effectively train the algorithm to make those decisions. Well, how do you train the AI to train itself across a decentralized footprint? These are the things that we're thinking about and the, the and you know these are the these are the the foundation pillars of these next generation experiences that I think the world will come to expect from a post 5G world, but there is, there is pain felt today in the form of capital expenditure, pain felt in the form of OPEX 
that, uh, that can be right-sized. I think that there's, there's uh, value in investing into the infrastructure side of the world that can solve real problems today. And uh, sorry, I'll just I'll finish that thought with this. Um, when has the world, when has any company, any enterprise in the world uh, ever not wanted to pay less for something that was uh, better and faster? Right? Fa who doesn't want better, faster, cheaper? Yeah. And, and you guys are making it better, faster, cheaper by shortening the distance. It's, uh, data has to travel. Uh, that's right. It's it's at a very at the very basic uh, level, right? That's right. That's right. It's smarts, not parts. Yeah. Yeah. That, that's interesting. It doesn't it doesn't get um, I think mentioned often enough in these conversations that it's still you know video or just online video is basically what's driving most of the demand for edge computing and for bandwidth. Yeah, I was I was meeting with uh, one of the MNOs recently, and he said if you if you Think about what we are today. We're packet pushers. That's what we do. And we want to get video content that isn't ours off of our network as fast as possible because we have to pay for this backhaul. Right? Well, off of our phones, you go through lots of fiber optics, you know, back through uh, to a central office or a data lake or an exchange to a carrier hotel, from a carrier hotel out to the internet. That's where your sort of peering begins. So the you know the cell phone user meets the the content the video provider and you know this is why you get buffers right as you move from tower to tower you can kind of see you know that video buffer for a few seconds then it and it picks mm -hmm. up again that's because from uh, your cell phone the RSSI the radio signal strength indication of your cell phone you moved into a new tower and the service had to move with you um, but there's huge amounts of cost that go into that backhaul and vast amounts of data. Uh, per per cell tower site, uh, it's 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 really a fascinating world. The uh, the the telco side of this, and obviously, we're yeah, there was a talk today uh, where somebody held up their phone and said, "Look at all the things that the the phone has replaced." And he talked about alarm clocks, he talked about dialers, he talked about a bunch of stuff. What we didn't talk about was the TV, right? Right. Yeah. He did not mention the TV, and I'm like, this that's what I use this for now. Whether it's on a plane or in my hotel room, I cannot tell you the last time I turned on an actual television set. Yeah. Um, talk about Open 19. You guys were pretty heavily involved in starting that together with, with LinkedIn. Um, what is that all about? Um, why are you guys part of it? And that's a great question, too. You know, I, I, I had a, a swing, uh, whether that was a swing and a hit or a swing and a miss, I think is yet to be determined. Uh, but with Open 19, what we really loved about that, and the, and the project, by the way, there's there's sort of two ways to think about Open 19. There's Open 19, the technology, and that's v today very much LinkedIn-led. Um, but there's also Open 19, the foundation. And uh, I was interested, obviously, in both, um, as well as the other founding partners. Um, but Yuval and I uh, were having a conversation in London last year. And that's Yuval Bahar uh, from, from LinkedIn. LinkedIn correct. That's right. Um, we were having a conversation last year in London, and and you've always sharing with me what they were doing on Open 19. I was like, this needs to be a nonprofit. This is solving a fundamentally different problem than than Open Compute, right? Which is another open source initiative for for hardware. Um, it's a it's a it's it 
it's a different level of the stack. Open 19 is about standardizing on a blind mate connection for power um, and networking and a, in a mechanical you know, uh, rollout that for us solves something that, that every MNO, every cloud company, every enterprise will probably be thinking a lot about when they are looking at a 40 or 100,000 site deployment. And that's the standardized truck roll. They're going to build small data centers at the edge, whether it's one, one you know, data center at the bottom of one cell phone tower or aggregating a bunch of uh, cell towers back to a, an aggregation point. Um, there's still, th you know, it's still thousands, not four, right? And we need standards. We need to be able to do vertical integration uh, and customers still demand choice. Uh, you know, so the, 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 the beauty of Open19 is a Dell or an HPE or a Supermicro or an Inspur or, you know, name your um, uh, hardware vendor, they can all innovate inside of the chassis. They can put x86 in there, they can put ARM in there, they can put FPGAs in there or GPUs in there, it doesn't matter. But when it gets uh, installed into the rack, it's a blind mate connection and, and there are standard interfaces that work with it. We actually are in the process of working with uh, Open19 on even contributing some software that we've developed uh, called uh, OpenDCRE, um, Open Data Center Runtime Environment. And uh, through that software, you can abstract away a lot of the proprietary uh, interfaces that exist on these uh, you know, hardware platforms today in the form of IPMI 1.5 on one vendor's hardware, IPMI 2.0 on another one, even Redfish, which has different implementations. Uh, you, can, you can use it, and we speak it, but you can also abstract it uh, and talk these higher levels of abstraction. Uh, and we had to do that for ourselves. Obviously, if we're ever going to get to the software-defined data center, we needed software that spoke both to the rack infrastructure as well as the physical data center. You know, you talk at the physical layer, at the critical environment layer, you're talking 60-year-old wire protocols like Modbus and CAN bus and BACnet. And then at the rack level, you're talking systems management bus and power management bus and I2C and debug headers. And there's you know, two different worlds there. And we needed a common interface that let us contextualize both. And context, I think, is also king for us at, you know, at the edge. And context is king for everybody. If I say 32, do you know what I'm talking about? This, the answer to everything. That's 42. Oh, sorry. <laughs> 32, it's just a number. But if I tell you it's the temperature outside, you know to bring a coat, right? So context is, uh, is, uh, is definitely something we have to think about in, in, in the form of a truly data-driven data center architecture. We have to understand the rack. We have to understand the data center at the lowest levels. And we should be able to insert that telemetry all the way up into the application stack. It's funny to me that as humans, we're investing so much time, energy, and money into autonomous driving, which seems to me like rocket science. I mean, there's very complex problems when there's a much more fundamental, probably easier to solve for uh, technology in the form of autonomous applications. It seems like we could get there. And so we've created software that we think will be uh, uh, usable and, and uh, will benefit sort of this self-driving application model. 
So there is uh, OpenDCRE and there's a portion of it that's open source and there's a portion of it that's a, a product. So OpenDCRE is 100% open source. Uh, uh -huh. the, uh, the, the Vapor uh, Volatis Edge portal uses those interfaces and then, and then when you are a tenant of Volatis, you can use the interface to do your site planning, and then if you use your, if you use the software in your own servers, you know you don't need our software to run in our environment. But if you use the software, the amount of context you have uh, goes way way up, and the amount of intelligent things you can do with your decentralized edge footprint, uh, I, I think that you uh, you get you get sm you get smarter, uh, and the experience uh, gets better for the next generation. Uh, application developers writing. Uh, today we've got cloud native applications, right? Everyone's talking about cloud native. I don't think it's too long before we start talking about edge native applications. Or they're just not going to care if the, it's running at the edge totally. or in the cloud. I think, I, I, I think that's right. I think when we talk about resiliency, as, as, as technology becomes commoditized, we care less and less about where it lives because it's ubiquitous. You know, we're sitting in a well-lit building Right with uh, HVACs uh, running, we don't even think about what happens on the the building management system and the lighting system that goes into these buildings. It's for us, for you and me. It's just when I go into a building, I turn on the switch, the light should come on. When I go home and I turn on the switch or I adjust my thermostat, it just works. Uh, I believe that data centers eventually uh, move to being almost invisible infrastructure, embedded in the urban core and um, applications and resiliency for applications will be governed through service level agreements that now are, 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 are maybe you know, far more dimensional than they have been in the past. Today, the applications that live on operating systems can you know, at best understand its host, right? And, and, and sometimes they don't even do that. Sometimes they don't even understand that the VM lives below them, right? They're completely agnostic to that. Uh, but if we're going to create this, you know, this new edge native world, uh, we think that the amount of data that those applications are going to need, there should be interfaces for that application to, to solve for the constraints that are placed on them. And then the, the service level agreements and operational level agreements uh, ultimately will move up the stack. Uh, that's, our, that's our view. And uh, you mentioned the interesting thing um, earlier today uh, while well, speaking at uh Mobile World Con uh, Congress, you guys are working on um, a blockchain routing protocol. Can you? I don't want to go too much into the bit? blockchain stuff. I will. I will touch you know, high, high level on this. Um, on, on Thursday, I'm. I'm. Uh, so in two days, I'm at another conference, a, a smaller conference, but but uh, the founder of DNS will be there. Uh, Dr. Uh, Paul uh, Makapetras, uh, and I, I'm super fascinated about what he's going to say. But our thesis here is that if you truly are going to have 40 billion connected devices by 2025, and let's just assume by 2030 we're well on our way to uh, a trillion, maybe more, um, certainly from the data. The, there's a network effect from 2018 or 2017 to 2020, right? We're sitting at 20 zettabytes of data on the planet, roughly. Um, and we'll go from 20 to 40 in the next two and a half years. 
and we're already generating more data every day than we did from the beginning of time to like somewhere around the year 2000, every 24 hours. Uh, and if we assume that we're going to double in the next two years, and then we double again from 2020 to 2025, there's just a huge network effect of, of what's happening to the amount of data. Um, and again, you know, the thesis being that a lot of that data is going to be far more dynamic, data proximity, data gravity, data locality, data velocity. Um, there's going to be a need for us to think about the relationships that get built between infrastructure and we call this, we call this X to X. You know, and that's uh, that's just sort of internally what we call it. Others say, you know, vehicle to infrastructure, infrastructure to vehicle, vehicle to vehicle. But the way we view the world, it doesn't matter if it's a tower speaking with a drone or a drone speaking with a car or a small cell site speaking. Some end node, some end node, right? Some device to some other device. There's a lot of that data in the next five years that will be very local. And, and will have no impact on the greater internet, right? And today, the way we do the, 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 the domain name system that we use today, DNS, the way we resolve you know, numbers and names, last week, I believe IPv10 came out, and that was largely to bridge the gap between IPv4 and IPv6. But even, even DNS, I think, was not intended to solve for 40 billion connected devices. So something new was needed. And, um, I had spent a little time, uh, you know, in the in the not the earliest days of of Bitcoin, but you know, I was I was involved in the Bitcoin world um, fairly early on, earlier than most. Um, and uh, the blockchain for me was really kind of a, a neat thing to think about a decentralized trust uh, for smart contracts that could be built between infrastructure. So a vapor chamber to a vapor chamber, or, or a tower to a drone, or a tower to a car. Um, and this way, uh, we think that the ledgers can be far smaller, because you don't have to update a global ledger in that world. You know, people in China don't care about a car driving in downtown Austin, Texas, probably. So, so to assign a DNS name to that, uh, to assign even a, you know, an IP, a, a, a public IP address, um, even a NATed IP address behind that, we just think that there's a more efficient way to do service activation. Uh, so we have invested uh, definitely some time and uh, thought into how blockchain could be used in a decentralized way to uh, create relationships between infrastructure and anything else. Cole, thank you so much for your time. Thank you very much. This episode of the Data Center Podcast is brought to you by Data Center World, the global conference for data center facilities and IT professionals. Join industry colleagues in San Antonio from March 12th to March 15th, 2018 to discover solutions to real-world data center problems. Learn more at datacenterworld.com. Again, that's datacenterworld.com.